Hello, everyone. It's a bonus episode. Can you even believe two episodes of Light Trees and News on the weekend? Are you dead? Are you in heaven? Maybe. I don't know. Guys, I have a rare interview for you with a a young man who's running for office named David Kim. If you are in California, if you're in L.A., specifically downtown L.A., Uh, He is running for Congress in the 34th District in California. So if you are there currently listening to the sound of my voice, you can vote for David Kim. And oh boy, what a treat that will be for you. He's a rad dude. He's very progressive on so many issues that I know are near and dear to your hearts. Visit davidkim2020.com if you want to sign up to help his campaign, if you just want to kick him a few dollars so hopefully he wins office. Um, Very much in the spirit of Bernie Sanders, AOC. If you're fans of them, you'll probably dig what David's about. Um, Yeah, I hope you enjoy this interview. And once again, davidkim2020.com. Usually, I I don't interview a lot of people running for office, a lot of politicians, but I had heard you as a guest on a podcast, and please don't ask me what podcast it was, because I truly cannot remember, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but I was just, I was really taken with your answers, and it was just very exciting to hear um, a young candidate who was so progressive on so many issues that are very important to me, so... I obviously I don't live in California. I live in New York. So unfortunately, I cannot vote for you, sadly. But we do have a lot of uh, listeners in California. And I just wanted to introduce them to you if they're not already aware of your campaign. And hopefully they can support you. So just like in case people don't know, can you tell us a little bit about your background, you know, as the the son of immigrants, um, the fact that you're an immigration attorney, and just like explain what made you want to run? Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I'll definitely share about my background. Um, my parents, they are pastors currently living in Northern California. They immigrated in um, 1983. And then I was born in 84 and um, just kind of growing up, uh, my dad um, and mom didn't have an opportunity to assimilate into mainstream, uh, be that learning the culture here, learning the, the custom and the lingos or, or just even English, plain English, because they were so involved in pastoring their Korean community church. And a lot of our church members were uh, and Korean wives with American husbands that were in the military. And um, and so my dad's first church was in Sierra Vista, Arizona, near an army base. And then his second church was in Tacoma, Washington, near an army base in Fort Lewis. And so I grew up just, I mean, when I was little, it didn't, it didn't, the question, the thought of that I looked differently or that I was different or quote unquote on the surface, like that didn't occur to me until we moved to Washington State, and um, I think it was like in second or third grade, um, kids at school and or uh, would just point out that we were different by squinting their eyes, mm-hmm. um, uh, asking us to do some awesome Bruce Lee kicks, and 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 whatnot. And and I mean, for for to 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 be asked to emulate a amazing martial artist, that's pretty cool but then over time it was just like man why do they only think like we're some like 
um, I don't know what you would call it, some doll where you press a button and then we're supposed to do what you ask us to do. And like, right. that's, that's the feeling that my brother and I started to get as we were going older. And so we remember sitting at stoplights, um, not wanting to look out at the side of the window because if we did, then other kids our age, whether that be in elementary or middle school, whenever we were, we would be at a stoplight, um, whoever would be in the car next to us would do the same stuff, uh, pointing out that we were Asian by squinting their eyes or uh, doing a bow or a prayer or, or whatever sign. And so for me, that, that kind of really stuck out. And um, I think for me, it, it kind of made me shameful of my heritage and my culture for some time. Um, so where I would not really talk about my the background that I had or the cult, the Korean culture and and um, and what I learned from home or what I was taught. But then that sort of blossomed starting in college and law school where I found my identity. I had lived in the closet all my life. It was so scary to come out um, as being gay to parents who are super conservative and they're pastors and and um, and they preach that if, if you're gay, you're going to hell. And so for I think it was mixed with that. I had a lot of kind of identity figuring out and really stepping into my power and coming out of that in college and law school. And it was it was after I had kind of realized and come to accept myself that I began to then have the capacity to then look around me as well, where it was, oh, this, this, these struggles that I've had, these experiences that I've had aren't unique to me. Like they're experienced by everyone. It's just a different story with different factors and different names. But, but these stories of, of discrimination or um, adversity or, or hardships, like they're not just unique to me. And, and when I say that, I'm also including the ten, the eight to nine years that I spent in Los Angeles working a two to three job daily grind and hustle trying to make ends meet, even as um, a, a fresh law school grad out of law school, because when I graduated, the legal market was really bad. Uh, paid jobs were a scarcity. And so I would be working free attorney jobs uh, from nine to six and then drive for Lyft and Uber from 7, 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. to make my rent money and then sleep for three hours and then go to work as a free attorney again. And uh -huh. so... Yeah, so for me it was just like, and I've been I've been an extra on set. I've served in restaurants and like just late at night because because I had to work for free as an attorney because I had to fill up my resume because if you have a hole in your resume, um, that's it's it's a it's a big no no, um, and so so with that like after having that eight nine years hustle and during that time I also um, opened up. TheHollywoodLawyer.com uh, to really help creatives and people in the industry, artists, uh, writers, directors who move to LA just to uh, start their dream and passion of what they've always wanted to do. But then what I noticed that was that a lot of them were moving here and then signing away their lives to ridiculous contracts with management or or even with attorneys where they're paying these ridiculous retainer fees of several thousand dollars for a one or two page contract that they, that they just needed advice on. And so to me, that was just so heartbreaking. And so I opened up the HollywoodLawyer.com with the intent to help create affordable legal services for certain niche creatives in the industry. And so after we had formed that inspired other solo and small boutique law firms to also rise up where if you get a pilot deal and you're a writer and you need somebody to look at your contract and they're asking you to s submit uh, feedback within 24, 48 hours, who do you go to? You don't want to go to an attorney that's going to charge you a $10,000 retainer plus a percentage on top. And so 
um, that was that was a big hole that I saw where um, artists and creatives who are basically just working class people also having two to three jobs to make ends meet being taken advantage of. And so that's that's what I did while also doing the hustle myself. And so it came to a point, Allison, and I'm I'm summarizing it up at the end where where in 2018 I was I was campaigning for Kenneth Mejia, who ran for the same spot that I'm running for now against the same opponent. And it was him that actually let me out of my birdcage. And I know that a lot of people, quote unquote, were let out of their birdcage in 2016 with Bernie's Our Revolution in 2020. Uh, again, um, for me, that moment was 2018, where it just hit me all of a sudden where, oh my gosh, life, what wasn't supposed to be this hard, isn't supposed to be this hard. And I'm, and I'm one of the fortunate ones imagine like what what's going on for everyone else and and so that's when my eyes began to open holy shit like our district is the 10th poorest congressional district um we have per capita incomes in the mid-20s yet rent is uh for one bedroom apartment at least two thousand dollars a month and it, it just didn't make sense and so the more i dug into it the more i got enraged and sad and depressed and, and infuriated that our local politicians, with whether it be their pay-to-place games with developer money, whether it be selling out to corporate interests and, and bailing them out over the people, that really pissed me off. And so um, I was trying to get Kenneth to run again uh, for this election, but because he did really well as a Green Party candidate, uh, he won almost 28% of the total vote. And in our district, there's less than 1% registered as green. So that means a third of our, and a majority of our voters are Democratic, that means a third of our Democratic voters didn't want to vote for their own candidate and voted for Kenneth. And so I was, I was trying to get Kenneth to run again, um, and he, he didn't want to because he was burnt out. And so I thought, you know what, the times are urgent right now. Um, we need to stop what's happening with the oppression of our communities um, domestically abroad. We need to abolish ICE. We need to <clears throat> go ahead and create a fast track to citizenship program for all of our undocumented people and dreamers and, and be able to really let them know that you you matter too and you're just as a human being as I am and, and really recognize that there are so many of them paying into our system but not really receiving the benefits of, of what they're contributing to America. And and so in and so that's kind of the aspect that I bring with immigration. Um, I currently defend uh, respondents in immigration court when they receive their notice to appear to, uh, to be removed from the country and also requesting and extending for their asylum as well. Um, because if because if a country like if our country continues down the route that it is, then we won't no one would be able to even follow or, or try to achieve the American dream that we always talk about, whether they be uh, ones that have lived here for years with their families for generations, or even those who are wanting to immigrate or who have immigrated to the States. I know that my parents tell me, um, even now, if we had immigrated to the States now, there would be no way we could have had had the, had the life and worked and hustled the way we did to raise you up like we did. I'm so thankful that we at least did that um, in the early 80s. And even so, I, I felt that we should have immigrated earlier, but I'm, I'm still thankful. And so to even hear from them how, how bleak and how hopeless it is um, and, and to also just see it in front of our eyes 
in our neighborhood, there's multiple families living two to a one bedroom apartment. And when is this going to end? And no matter how much they work, no matter how much they have two to three jobs to make ends meet, that light at the end of the tunnel, they can't see. And so I wanted to ask you, I think what is so frustrating to so many young progressives who see someone like you running for office, hear where you stand on these like really important topics is your platform seems like it should be the standard. It's sort of like no shit right now. We should have a universal basic income. We should have Medicare for all. We are currently in the middle of a plague. And the fact that so many moderate Democrats are still running as fast as they can away from Medicare for all is absolutely baffling to so many people right now. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think that so many Democrats are are still running from this issue? I mean, obviously taking into account that some of them are in the pocket of like giant pharmaceutical companies and stuff like that. But it seems like now would be the most opportune time to sort of embrace this idea of, of affordable, accessible health care for everyone. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, at the end of the day, I think it really comes down to a few couple things, um, Allison. And the one is, I think the first one is, uh, I don't know which one to start off with first because they're both important, but I think the first one is is priority. Um, because if, if you as a representative, and the word represent is in your title, if you as a representative are truly supposed to represent your people, um, then during a pandemic like this, if you're actually talking with your constituents, opening up office hours since you're only working four and a half months in Congress anyway, and you're on recess for eight and a half months of that, or, or whatever the calculations come out to be, I haven't done that, but I saw an estimate of that, of how they're just always on recess. But if you were to eat, actually spend all that other time <laughs> talking with constituents, being available, seeing what their concerns or needs are, and then discussing together what legislation would help them before you go to Congress and DC and legislate, then we we wouldn't <clears throat> then then we would actually have a representative government where there's co-governing with and by the people. Um, and so I think this whole mentality of just our elected officials even um, being elected, saying, okay, I'm going to go off on my own and do whatever I think is valid for my community and then come back and report to you. Like, that's not the mentality or the duty or the job description of a representative. A representative is one that is co-actively listening to and engaging with their constituents, co-governing, deciding what would be helpful, and then going to D.C. to do what he or she or they have shared with their constituents and then coming back to discuss how they can move forward on that. And that's what a representative government is. But because our elected officials are not being kept accountable in that way, because when we have engagements, constituent meetings and town halls like that, that's what keeps our representatives accountable because our, our people are able to voice their their disappointments and approvals or or their opinions on things that have been recently legislated or or moving forward and that's how it's done and so when you look at representative aoc even in new york hearing from my friends who live there like she's so proactive on holding regular monthly town hall meetings in a different borough of her district because she wants to hear and she wants to be connected. She wants to co-govern. She wants to be held accountable. But that's not what's being done with the majority of our officials. And so 
for them to run away from Empire, it clearly shows you that they're in their own bubbles, completely disconnected from their constituent base, completely not being held accountable by their constituents because they choose not to. And <clears throat> if we actually had a mechanism in Congress where we're forcing our uh, representatives to hold office hours, to make themselves, to, to have them hold monthly town halls where they're in active listening discussions with the constituents before coming to DC, then we could bring a lot of change. But what's going on right now is also coupled with this fear of, oh no, I need to I need to climb my way up to power. I need to play in this game of party politics. Oh, Biden and Biden is the new head and figure of the Democratic Party. Since since they since since he's not for M, M, M for A, like it seems appropriate that we should just really cater to him and the top dog and and it's it's this mindset of kissing ass and sucking up in DC that needs to stop, whether that be to the few party officials at the top. Because if you look at it, it's just a few people controlling Congress. And it just it it's it's insane when you look at that. It's like why why do I even have a representative if you're just gonna do what the few in in, in Congress say? And so it's it's this fear of being able to stand up and to speak for themselves and to have a voice and to actually say, no, this is what I want for my community. And so I feel like a lot of our representatives are spineless. They're all acting in fear and reactivity. Um, and also in this blindness because they are so tied down by corporate money, because they are so tied down by corporate donors and interests, they're not able to realize, oh, holy shit, like if I were to really go against private prisons and the industrial complex with that and stop taking money from it, there's money there. If I really stop uh, my my taking money from the military industrial complex and, and scale back on the Pentagon budget and, and scale back on military expenditures and the regime change endless wars and really kind of reflect on a deeper level of why are we doing these things, wow, there is so much money to care for our people, but it's this it's this pre-programmed mentality and fear and brainwashing that has happened where even when progress is, when we're talking about our platforms and our issues, a lot of times the question comes up, how are you going to get the money? Even that too is a result of the manipulation and the brainwashing that has been done by the corporate party leaders, by the corporate media. And so if you were to actually see it, there's there's they, they printed two plus trillion million dollars to inject and just to aid the biggest transfers of wealth during this pandemic. And so it really comes down to, Allison, going back to why are these people running away from M4A? Number one, they're not being held accountable to the people. They don't have the ability to connect with the suffering and distress of the people right now. That's the big thing. And number two, they're spineless. Their, their decision-making is all in fear and reactivity. Um, and then it's also caused because they're tied down to corporate interests, to party leadership and party politics that that is is really blinding them on on what their real duty is and should be as a representative right i circling back to to biden i wanted to get your take on you know obviously biden naming kamala harris as his his vice president uh nominee you know, obviously, a lot of people are very upset because of her whole history as a prosecutor in California. And I know you've talked on the issue of overhauling the criminal justice system. So how how do you feel about her nomination? Yeah, um, I mean, I definitely am very um, I, I um, 
I mean, she could have definitely, not she could have, but um, I don't know what the right word is. I'm just trying to find what that is. I guess I'm, I'm, I am um, disappointed that she has the record that she had as, as a DA and an attorney general. Um, and I mean, and I, I'm probably assuming that she's regretful in many ways as too. Um, and I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt on that. And so, although uh, Biden could have picked somebody that would be someone who um, would be a sign of, of more hope and more inspiration for those on the very left or those who are progressive, um, I don't think it's a horribly bad choice either. Um, I mean, yes, I'm not ignoring the fact that she calls herself top cop and like she she has this this horrible past of contributing to incarceration and, and the cop force and, and and police brutality and and everything else. But and I was actually, um, Allison, super shocked. Well, not super shocked. I was a little disappointed again, uh, very disappointed when um, I wasn't completely shocked because it's expected. But two weeks ago, I saw her speaking a video clip of her speaking on stage, talking about why the defund the police movement um, isn't something that she vibes with or supports. And I was like, what the F? Um, but in any case, I, I guess my thoughts are I'm, I'm I was very reactive and 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 opinionated on, oh, my gosh, she has this track track record in that. But after some time passed, I thought, you know what? Looking back at what she's kind of reflected in how she's conducted herself in the Senate so far and how she's pitched and framed herself as a presidential candidate, there is kind of that sense of, hey, there are some signs where we can give her the benefit of the doubt and see how she turns the next four years around. Because I feel, Allison, that if she actually does uh, not just talk the talk, but really walk the walk in, in doing everything that she's preached uh, for the past year or two years, then then we can see an opportunity for her to actually reset her record for the next, um, okay. if she does well for the next four years. And if she does, Allison, I mean, she could be that unifying person um, in regards to the left, um, or she could not be, and she could be the driving away factor. We know that Biden's definitely not going to be, but <laughs> that's a fact. But I think Kamala, I mean, there, there, there is some hope there, and I think for us, we should just wait, but see and see what happens of that. But then also, but not be complacent either. But, yeah, um, it is, it is yeah. interesting because I think a lot of people on the left have focused on her her record uh, with incarceration, which is terrible. But if you look at her actual voting record, she's one of the most liberal people in Congress. So it feels like she is evolving as a politician, mm -hmm. which I personally find encouraging because it's like, really, we're just focusing on who we'd rather negotiate with. And it's like, I would much rather negotiate with a Biden-Harris ticket <laughs> than yeah. the alternative. Yeah. Yeah. I was I was sharing with a friend, I was yesterday even, if Kamala, like, I mean, if she continues on the track that she's reflected in Senate um, and not like the past before that, and she's like, we were talking about the evolving, like you just referenced then she could she could be on the track to clinching president in the future as well, like if she were to do that well. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm I'm hopeful and and we'll continue to observe and see yeah. what happens. 
So Congress has gone on this break until September, which is absolutely crazy because they, again, were in the middle of a pandemic. They didn't vote to extend unemployment insurance. Nobody got the second stimulus checks. Millions of people are on the precipice of being evicted currently. And you talk a lot about a a human centered economy. Could you could you break down that concept? Like, what does that mean to you? Yeah. Um, During this pandemic, we've heard, I know some of us, kind of the news uh, flash bites of, oh, the stock market is the highest it's been, or or these company, or the GDP is high, or or these individuals and companies have made so much money. And, um, And when you look at that, and you kind of, and then compare that to the actual condition and status of, of our nation and our communities and our people where we're at, like what you just said, millions are about to be evicted in Los Angeles, just several hundred thousand alone. Um, and people aren't able to pay rent or, or even pay for food and put food on the table. And that's because they don't have jobs and they're not able to, to work. And then when you think about it, it's like, what do you mean our economy is doing well when the people are actually the economy? Because it, Los Angeles was built on the labor of our brown brothers and sisters, and yet they're being shut out from the system and being able to participate in receiving the benefits because they're being taxed without representation. And, and that taxation without representation is is tyranny and so i think in the same way what's being reflected is on a mass scale the working people and 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 i'm not going to just say working people but even those just in our families and students and seniors we're all being excluded even though we've contributed even though we are the economy and we're just seeing mass transfers of wealth from the people that are the economy to the few and the privileged at the top. And that's an oligarchy that's at play. And so we don't really have um, a country and um, a focus that's really on the people, but more on the financial activities and the, and, and that, that privileged and that privileged and closed market among the wealthy and the few and the rich. And so in order for us to really start moving towards a country that's, that's human-centered on the economy, that means we need to recognize our people and see what is the standard to measure how our economy is doing. That means we need to see if our people are able to have the health care that they need, the education access that they need, the housing that they need, the food access, good food access that they need, uh, the ability to pay their expenses. So how do we gauge that? We gauge that by not GDP. We gauge that by what's the what's the late long life expectancy. What's the, what's the average rate for that? How long are our marriages? How how what's the happiness factor? And like that's the that's how we start measuring how we're doing well as a country. Not because of what financial tracks transactions a few a few people that have the entitlement and privilege of participating in the stock market are doing because masses of the american people don't even invest in the stock market and so it's it's realizing huh we've been we've been focused on measuring our country's success on standards that have nothing to do with the people and now it's time to really focus on setting up standards and gauges to see how well we are doing with the people and that's how we bring the country back to being focused on our communities and that's how we stay away from all of the empty lip services and really start moving back towards what 
this government was supposed to be a representative one that really is of the people for and by the people. And so so that's kind of the idea behind human centered economy with that. Right. So you you touched on this a little bit when we were talking about Kamala. But again, a lot of moderate Democrats are really running away from this idea of, of abolishing the police, defunding the police. Um, a lot of Democrats are not happy with that framing. So what do you think needs to change in terms of, of, of policing? Yeah, I mean, in regards to in Los Angeles, we actually, um, I don't know if for those who are listening now, if they've heard of the People's Budget LA or um, Care Not Cops LA and, and the movement that, was, that, that started here, because here in Los Angeles, the mayor allocated about over 54% of the entire budget towards the LAPD when there's zero money being spent on homelessness prevention, when there's um, just mere fractions of percentages being uh, spent on other assistance programs. And then when you think about that, you also kind of see, again, what I had referenced earlier, the whole fact about priorities. Like, where are our priorities as a government? Are they interested in policing the people more and thinking that that will establish law and order? Or or is it really caring about the people and, and realizing that, hey, if, if everyone is taken care of, really would there be a need for for any anyone to even want to commit something which would quote unquote be illegal and they would only be doing that because they wouldn't otherwise be able to obtain that through lawful means. And so I think a bigger question for our political officials is how do we really start uh, creating a, a world that's better for everyone where there is order and safety? That's not doing it by policing because this whole broken windows policing theory and war against drugs is something that's oppressive to our communities and is is racist and um, and so it's realizing on a deeper level of how do we actually start making change if we actually start investing into the healthcare education housing support services mental health services for our people and the ability to have them sustain themselves like then then do, do we really need to over budget and over allocate for other areas like the LAPD and so so yes I mean I mean, some some people do say, well, okay, then after having heard that, the the word phrase defund the police sounds like it's abolishing it entirely. And some people, when they use the ref the phrase, uh, uh, some people are referencing the complete abolition, um, and some people are referencing, no, we just need to defund it to ex an extent where it makes sense that we're putting in more care um, towards our people in services and and everything else that I mentioned. And so kind of depending on how you're using that term, um, it differs. But for us, I mean, there there really needs to be for the federal government to be able to take a stance, a, a firmer stance where it's not just, oh, more diversity trainings or, or body cams, because obviously those things have not worked until now. And it's for us to take an even bolder stance to say, hey, like we recognize that the cause of all of this isn't or, or, or the solution to all of this isn't policing. And so we as the, as the federal government need to set that example instead of sending in police cop militia um, like what Trump is doing, we should actually be scaling back and setting that example where we're also supporting our local governments in that. And so I think um, a clear 
so that would be one area of legislation that's needed. And there's 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 um, there's different forms of the um, legislation being advocated in or submitted in Congress. Um, like ones submitted by Representative Ayanna Presley and, and others. But but then also on a practical level, the government could also be doing that for and abroad as well, where it's if we actually ended our regime change endless wars, if we actually started not just focusing on defense, defense, defense all the time, but also on diplomacy, also on development, also on humanitarian needs, around the world, we could actually be saving a lot of money to have money to care for our people domestically as well. And so it's not just a local aspect of the police system and, and the overallocation and the and reprioritizing how we solve, but it's also doing that on a foreign and international level as well, because there is the money to care for our people. We're just frivolously spending it abroad and, and on other things. Right. And then finally, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, here in New York City, around March, when the whole coronavirus thing was first uh, really exploding, it was devastating. Something like 30,000 people have died in New York State. Um, but those numbers are skyrocketing all over the country, the mortality rate. And California is rapidly <laughs> gaining on us. So I, I wanted to ask you, what do you see as having gone wrong in California in terms of uh, now COVID numbers really exploding? Yeah. Um, in regards to our city, um, at least because, I mean, I live in Los Angeles and our district is here. Uh, the mayor definitely should have not reopened um, as, as he did. Um, but even after now, it's it's been closed down again. Um, but the numbers are still climbing, and it's it's this it's this reality of understanding. Hey, and wearing a mask, yes, that's the basic thing to do. But how do we also encourage our people to stay home and to 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 keep themselves safe and to provide for that? And obviously, um, I mean the appropriate PPP, PPE and funding towards medical treatments and at a time like this medicare for all uh providing the ability for them to be treated even if it's not covid 19 related so that we're bolstering um the health and immune systems of all our people so that they're less susceptible to to contracting and and to being um to getting COVID-19, like those are the priorities that we should be making in terms of funding. Um, and then also to encourage our people to stay home and to be safe. Like, like there's no reason that, I mean, even if they go out, there's, there's no jobs for them to find. But if we were able to give our people the, the ability to, to be sane and to, to know that they have the resources that they can go ahead and pay rent, that they're that they they don't have to go out scrambling try to find things um, without no luck and be able to pay rent to put food on the table. Then that's how we can actually at least keep our people alive through all of this because it's a very sad fact to say that after this pandemic, there at least forty percent of our businesses won't be back anymore, and that's. Right. And that's horrible just to think about. And so I think another factor that the governments, our local governments and state and federal need to start thinking about is given that we know those facts, how do we deal with that? How do we start thinking about forward moving plans where people are able to um, start um, uh, 
being start being self-empowered and, and get on their foot back again, get on their feet back again. Um, and what do we do with that? And I think it's for us to now start being on the offensive and being prepared instead of instead of kind of just working with the number. And, and, and I'm not saying like um, like we, we do need to focus on the numbers of what's happening and really put into the care of that, but also think on a deeper level on on a farther out plan of hey this is bound to happen we should be prepared for this we should be prepared for this but it's always on the defensive that i feel like our local county state federal government has always been on always acting on the defensive once things happen and i think there also needs to be a, a switch and a shift in that um and whether whether that's tied to uh, a sense of individual priority and character or, or leadership or what have you it just needs to change. And so that's where we really need to start seeing that change. It is just so infuriating when you hear about like the fact that Canada sends everybody $2,000 a month. And it's like, we could easily do that with like a slight tweak in priorities, as you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, it, (laughs) it just doesn't make sense that our representatives are going on recess are on, on recess a majority of the year. And and they don't understand how how two thousand dollars a month could be life changing for so many, even though it's not a lot, but still it's life changing right now. So yeah. yeah. So David, how could our listeners in California support you? Yeah, for for those of you who are in California in Los Angeles, we would love to get your support with um with telling your family and friends, sharing about whoever you know lives in CD34. Um, our district covers downtown LA, Koreatown, Highland Park, Eagle Rock, and other major surrounding neighborhoods. So just even sharing with five friends helps a lot. Um, getting the word out. Um, the incumbent won a total 52% of the primary. So we have a really strong shot at winning this election. So just spreading word of mouth. If you want to volunteer, um, you can go to davidkin2020.com forward slash volunteer and phone bank and text bank for us. And um, and then also donate on the website davidkin2020.com as well. Wow. Crazy, right? Hi, it's Allison, your host. Isn't it wild when you hear a politician talking about stuff that you agree with? Isn't that just a weird, unfortunately novel experience in the United States? Guys, it doesn't have to be a novel experience. Um, Support candidates who you agree with, uh, whether that's David, whether that's other candidates, you know, you know what you stand for. But uh, this election's really important. So I hope you're involved. I hope you're engaged. I hope you're doing well in the midst of all this craziness. Guys, take care of yourself. I hope you enjoyed this special bonus episode and you've been enjoying all the bonus episodes. I'm trying to bring you the good content. If you're a fan of the show, if you're a fan of what I'm doing, lighttreason.news, smash that donate button, or patreon.com slash Kilkenny. Guys... Have a great rest of your weekend. And while you're at it, stay inside and cause a little trouble. <laughs>